What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having a great week so far. I want to talk about three topics specifically today. Number one, we're going to talk about the UFC's contracts. This stuff has been going on for many years now, but some new information came to light over the weekend, and I want to dig into exactly what's happening on the fighter pay side and some of the things that might be changing there. Number two, I want to talk about the ATP Tour's new plan to financially incentivize the top players. And number three, I'm going to give an honest review of the most recent sports documentaries that have come out on Netflix and other platforms. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode, so let's get right into it. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about today is UFC fighter contracts and fighter pay. Now, we talked a few weeks back about an article from John Nash and Bloody Elbow excellent reporting about how much fighters were making on an annual basis compared to some of the other sports leagues. But some new information has come out this past week, again from John Nash and the Bloody Elbow. Now, this information is unique because it talks about some of the contractual details between the UFC's top fighters and the company. And we'll get into that in a second. But the person we're going to be talking about is Sean O'Malley. Now, for those of you that don't follow UFC, Sean O'Malley has become a star. He's got crazy hair. He's got a big attitude. People compare him to Conor McGregor. He can knock people out. Like He could be the next star of the UFC. They claim he has Dana White treatment because he's friends with the Nelk Boys and all these people, right? So he has been put on this pedestal where people think if he keeps performing, he is going to be the next star of the UFC. He ends up winning his first bantamweight championship at UFC 292 this past weekend via TKO. So big win for him. He becomes champion. And the fight was massive. Dana White says that UFC 292 did more than $7 million in gate revenue at the TD Garden in Boston. He says that was more than Bruce Springsteen at $5 million, and it broke the record for the most revenue from a gate for a non-Boston sports event in Boston, right? So basically, we're not counting the Celtics, we're not counting the Bruins, we're not counting the Red Sox. Non-Boston sports event in Boston, UFC 292 did more than $7 million for that fight. Now, there's a few different things that John Nash and Steffi Hayes go into uh, on the bloody elbow talking about how much money he made from this fight. And they specifically talk about why Sean O'Malley will not make as much money as Conor McGregor, but also why no other UFC fighter will probably make as much money as Conor McGregor. So they point out a few different things. Number one, O'Malley didn't get a pay-per-view share for UFC 292. Now, the way this works in the UFC is that only the champions qualify for pay-per-view points, usually. There are a couple exceptions to this around huge fights. So one example that comes to mind and they mention is Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz. That fight was a non-title fight, but it was obviously massive. It was huge. It doesn't matter if it was for a title or not. It was going to sell a lot of money. Both those guys are huge attractions, so they get pay-per-view points for that fight. But typically, the way it works is that only UFC champions qualify for pay-per-view points and not all of the champions get paid the same. So this is a contractual basis on a one-off, right? So some champion might get paid X, another champion might get paid Y, but O'Malley didn't get paid any of the share because he was challenging the champion. He was not the champion at the time. So there's a few different things that go into this, but he was the star of this fight. He has a huge online audience. If you go and look at Google Trends, his search volume was 20 times higher than his opponent before and after the fight. And obviously, the numbers are going to be huge. The gate was huge. The pay-per-view sales are likely to be huge. And he's only going to get a very small percentage. 
as the challenger. He didn't get any of the pay-per-view points, right? So some of this is a little bit unique to the UFC because they don't talk about all their deals. They don't have to in a lot of instances, but sometimes the UFC does what they call a side letter with the athletes where they have these side agreements to essentially pay them a bonus if they perform, if the gate does well, if the pay-per-view does well. So it's very likely that O'Malley might have got some bonus on the side from Dana White in the UFC, but it would have been much smaller than he would have got or he should have got from the value that he added to UFC 292. And then thirdly, one of the things that was really unique after this fight was O'Malley called out Gervonta Davis. Now, many of you know that Gervonta Davis is not a fighter in the UFC. He doesn't practice MMA. He's a boxer. He's one of the world's best boxers. And we all know why this makes a lot of sense. Conor McGregor fought Floyd Mayweather many years ago, and he made more than $100 million. I think it was $130 million that McGregor made on that one fight, which is a king's ransom compared to the pennies that some of these guys are making in the UFC, even the champions. So if you look at it from that instinct, it makes a lot of sense why he would want to do a crossover boxing match with Gervonta Davis. It would put up big numbers, so we think. But obviously, the bloody elbow came in with the math, and they said, not so fast. They estimate that O'Malley would have to take a 70-30 split against Gervonta Davis. Gervonta Davis would obviously get the 70% split, and O'Malley would get the 30% split. The UFC would have to co-promote this event. They wouldn't just let him out of the contract, which was a huge reason why Francis Ngannou was not allowed to just go box Tyson Fury and why he ultimately left the UFC. Now, the money was so good in the McGregor fight where the UFC agreed to do this, but if the UFC is going to do it for O'Malley, they're going to want at least 50% or possibly more of that fight. So it obviously drastically reduces what O'Malley is able to get from it when he co-promotes with the UFC. And when you add all of those numbers up, O'Malley, it's estimated from Nash, that he's only going to be taking home eight figures. Now, eight figures is still a significant amount of money. We're talking about $10 million or more, which is much more than he's making in UFC at the time. But this is significantly smaller than the $130 million Conor McGregor made during his boxing match against Mayweather. And there's a simple point to this. McGregor was a huge draw, so he got a better share than O'Malley would get. And that fight sold extremely, extremely, extremely well. That fight did 4.3 million pay-per-view buys. And for context, Gervonta Davis's latest fight against Ryan Garcia, a fight that I bought, a fight that many of you probably bought. It was a huge fight. That fight only did 1.2 million pay-per-view buys. Now, 1.2 million pay-per-view buys is still really good. But in the context of 4.3 million for Mayweather and McGregor, it's really small. So O'Malley can go out and potentially box Gervonta Davis if the USC allows him to do it and Davis wants to take the other side of that. But he's not going to make anywhere near what Conor McGregor did. But the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to UFC fighter pay is the contracts themselves. And this is a little bit of a loaded question because there's so much that goes into this. So we could probably talk about this for an hour, but I want to condense it down into just a few different things. One, the UFC pays out a very small percentage of its overall annual revenue to its fighters. Now, if you look across all the major sports leagues in North America specifically, we're talking about the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, the MLB, even the PGA Tour. Every single one of these leagues is paying out somewhere between 45% to 55% of their annual revenue to their athletes. Again, the PGA Tour is paying out 55% of its annual revenue to its athletes. The NBA is paying out 51%. The NHL is paying out 50%. The NFL is paying out 48%. MLB is paying out 45%. The UFC, on the other hand, is estimated to pay out 13 
to 14.5%, right? So a fraction of what these other leagues are paying out to their athletes. And the obvious thing here is that they don't have a union, right? They're not negotiating CBAs. The UFC is negotiating one-off contracts with every single fighter for every single fight. And they're able to get away with what essentially amounts to whatever they want in a lot of these circumstances. So for instance, in 2022, the UFC brought in $1.14 billion in revenue, and they paid out just $146 million to fighters, right? So total athlete cost for the UFC, aka fighter pay, was $146 million on $1.14 billion of revenue for the league that year. Now, they brought in $387 million of profit, so that's a 34% margin, pretty damn good, especially when you look at all of the other promoters across MMA and boxing. They're literally making more money per year than every single other promoter combined. It's absolutely incredible that the business they built, now, just because they built a great business and it's good for them financially doesn't mean that it's good for the fighters. It doesn't mean that it's fair, and we have another example of this. Right, You look at that and you say, all of the other leagues are getting 45%, 50%, 55% of the annual revenue to their athletes. That sounds great. The UFC fighters are only getting 13 to 14.5%. That sucks. Sounds like they're getting screwed. Well, they are, but they could potentially get screwed in another way now. So in the article, John Nash writes about how UFC contracts are structured today. And this wasn't always the case, but there's one piece of specific language in the contract that's extremely concerning. And basically, the jargon states that the UFC has the opportunity, and they could. It doesn't mean they will. It doesn't guarantee it. But the UFC could take a cut from any business venture launched by a fighter on their roster. So for example, Sean O'Malley has said in the past that he wants to go open a chain of cannabis dispensaries. Conor McGregor has obviously started a massively successful whiskey company. He's launching a beer. He has a bunch of other businesses too. A bunch of UFC fighters do this, right? All athletes do this. They say, hey, I'm famous. I have all these followers. I have this distribution. I have this audience. I'm going to launch businesses now rather than just getting salary or earnings or endorsements or stuff like that. They go launch businesses. But the UFC contracts now say that the UFC could, again, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to do this but it allows them the right to potentially take a cut from any business venture launched by a fighter on their roster. So if Sean O'Malley was to go and open that chain of cannabis dispensaries, the UFC contractually has a right to take a cut from those businesses because he's on their roster. Same would have happened with Conor McGregor if this was in the contract when he signed his deal. Again, not every athlete signs the same contract, but in the contract for Sean O'Malley, it states that the UFC could potentially go do that. That is horrible. That's absolutely ridiculous. And it's one of the main reasons that we've seen fighters like Francis Ngannou say, I'm done with this, right? We haven't seen that there's a bunch of other options between the PFL and Bellator, or if you want to go boxing, there's just not a lot of other stuff. If you're an MMA fighter, your best opportunity to earn a check in the octagon is with the UFC most of the time. But what we've seen is the UFC, rather than going in reverse and changing things for athletes, They've continuously gotten more and more and more and more aggressive year after year. And I'll give you a few examples. So the UFC a few years ago, they signed these sponsorship deals. They did fight kit deals. So athletes could no longer, they can't wear their own sponsorships. You're not allowed to sell anything on your shorts like you can in boxing. Your t-shirt that you wear into the ring, you're not allowed to sell. The stuff in your fight corner, you're not allowed to sell. The UFC sells all of that. And the athletes don't get a cut of that. 
Obviously, that's very different in the boxing world. A huge part of their money from a fight comes from the sponsorships they're able to sign on their shorts, the things that people are wearing in their corners, the things that they're promoting before and after the fights. The UFC has totally cut that out. They keep all of that money for themselves. And it's a huge reason why their revenue has increased year after year dramatically versus fighter pay, which if you look at it year after year, it is actually falling. I think it was around 17 or 18% a couple of years ago. And now we're down to 13 to 14 and a half percent. So rather than things getting better and moving closer towards the average of the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, the NHL, the PGA Tour, the UFC is moving the other way. And that's something that's clearly going to come under a microscope. For those of you that haven't been paying attention to the legal side of the sports issue in the UFC, there's been some huge developments on the antitrust lawsuit that's been happening for what feels like a decade at this point. This lawsuit just got class certification. So essentially what happened was it went from five fighters suing the UFC to now 1,200 fighters are automatically going to be enrolled in this lawsuit, and it's a class action lawsuit against the UFC. And their case is pretty simple. They claim that the UFC is a monopoly. They say that they have 90% of the share of revenue in the MMA market and that their business practices are not good enough to warrant a 90% share in that market versus a 10% share for every other promotion. Now, obviously, the UFC has their argument to this, and the lawyers for the plaintiffs have their argument too. But at the end of the day, this stuff is a class action lawsuit now. It's under a microscope. Federal judges are looking at this stuff, and there's 1,200 fighters that are going to be suing the UFC for hundreds of millions of dollars and potentially billions of dollars. So I think this is something that's only going to get looked at more and more and more, especially because the UFC continues to get more aggressive, right? They're paying fighters less than ever before, but they're making more money than ever before. And they're also getting more stringent with the contracts that they're making these athletes sign. I mean, the fact that they would argue that they can get a cut of every business that an athlete on their roster signs outside of their competition, something that literally has nothing to do with them fighting in the octagon, that's egregious. That's ridiculous. And that's something that the courts have to look deeper into. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. The second thing I want to talk about today is the ATP Tour. Now, many of you remember, I recorded a podcast and I wrote a newsletter a few weeks ago talking about tennis in general. And one of the things I spoke about was how I believed and was predicting to some extent that Saudi Arabia was going to make a big investment in tennis. Now, Saudi has done a few different things. They've obviously invested heavily in golf with Live Golf and the merger that they've done with the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour. They're obviously investing heavily in football at this point with Ronaldo and Neymar and a bunch of other players that they've signed contracts to worth more than a billion dollars at this point. The Saudi Pro League has changed dramatically over the last year. They've done deals with Formula One, with wrestling. They even offered to buy Formula One for, I think it was $20 billion. So they are throwing away money left and right when it comes to sports. And we all know the details by now. They make a bunch of money on oil. They're worried about fossil fuels. They want to diversify their economy. Part of that is sports washing through sports, but part of that is opening up their country to tourism, i.e. Dubai or the UAE, right? So they want to make their country a tourist destination. But one of the reasons specifically why I think they're going to go after tennis is because the structure of tennis 
is very similar to golf. It's very similar to boxing. All of the athletes are independent contractors. They eat what they kill. They only get paid when they show up to tournaments and they win. They have to pay all of their expenses, including coaches, including hotels, including meals, including everything, right? And the result of this is that many professional tennis players don't make any money. Essentially, if you're outside of the top 100 or 150 in the world, you're barely making a living playing tennis. Many people actually, in fact, have other jobs. They have full-time careers and tennis is sort of a side hustle for them. Or they're losing money and someone else is financially supporting their career, whether it be parents, siblings, friends, other family members, investors in some cases that take a percentage of their winnings if they do win. There's a bunch of different things that go into this. So that was my thesis behind the idea that Saudi was going to come in and invest in tennis. But the ATP tour has responded. Obviously, they're not responding to me, but they're responding to the idea that they're not paying their players enough and the athletes cannot survive financially unless you're one of the world's best players. So they launched this system this past week called the Baseline Program. And essentially what it does is it guarantees a minimum earning level for the top 250 players in the world. So for the top 100, they're guaranteed to make $300,000 a year. 101 to 175 ranked players in the world, you're going to make $150,000 a year. And 176 to 250, you're going to make $75,000 a year. Now, the way this is going to work is it's going to be a minimum. So if you're a top 100 player in the world and you make $275,000 that year, they're going to give you an extra $25,000 to get you to 300. So they're not just writing a check for $300,000 and giving it to every top 100 player. They would obviously lose a lot of money doing that. Instead, they're going to meet the difference if you don't meet that minimum payment guarantee. So this is obviously huge. They estimate that they're going to be helping out 30 to 45 players a year with financial assistance. They also established a second pillar, which is for injury protection. It's $200,000 for the top 100 players, $100,000 for 101 to 175, and $50,000 for 176 to 250. That's for players that play in fewer than nine tournaments each year. So if you get hurt after two tournaments, you're guaranteed again to make injury compensation up to that dollar amount for your world ranking. And there's a third pillar, which is for newcomer investment, which is any player that breaks in the top 125, you will receive $200,000 minimum that year because they're trying to advance new players and help them develop and make their way up the ATP ranks. So again, there's a lot of moving pieces here. This just got announced literally this week. So some of this is to be decided. We still don't know how they're going to rank players. Is it done at the beginning of the year? Is it done at the end of the year? Is there a certain timeline where you have to apply? Right, like How does this work? We don't know all the logistics, but this is a huge step in the right direction. But the one thing I would caution about is this is not going to stop Saudi. Right, Guaranteeing players an extra $25,000 if they only make $275,000 is not going to stop Saudi from coming in and investing a billion plus dollars into the sport. That doesn't mean that Saudi is going to create a whole new tennis tour like they did with Live Golf, but the ATP tour has already reportedly had talks with Saudi about an investment in the sport. I think they would be welcome at this point by many of the top players and the ATP and the women's tour themselves. So my guess is that this still happens at some point. And if the players are able to put away some of the sports washing stuff and the human rights things and stuff like that, it's ultimately good for the players. They're going to be making more money. These things are getting better and better every year, it seems like, for the ATP Tour. They increased prize money from $180 million in 2022 to $217 million in 2023. It was the largest single-year increase in ATP history. 
So they're trying a few different things to get money into the sport. Like we saw with golf, when Saudi comes in and they're going to invest and potentially disrupt the sport, money sometimes can come out of nowhere. And it seems like that's what's happening with the ATP tour. So stay tuned here. I think there's more to come. My guess is that Saudi still gets involved at some point, although it clearly looks like the ATP is trying to do the reverse of what the PGA tour did and get ahead of this by making the life better for these athletes, by giving them more money up front, and by increasing the likelihood that they do not need to go to outside sources for capital or funding. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about quickly today are the sports documentaries that have come out over the last few weeks on Netflix and other platforms like that. So specifically, I'm talking about the Johnny Manziel Untold series on Netflix, and then the Swamp Kings about the Florida Gators, their mid-2000s team on Netflix as well. Now, Manziel's documentary on Netflix was just one episode. It was about 70 minutes long. The Florida Gators one was, I believe it was four episodes, so a little bit longer in content. But to me, they both lacked context. They both lacked structure. They both lacked details. There was no sensitive topics. There was no depth. There was no hard questions. And really, there was nothing substantial out of a few interesting stories. Now, I tweeted this out the other day, and it was a lot more polarizing than I believed it would have been. Some people really agreed, and some people really disagreed. They said they loved the Manziel doc. They said that these documentaries are meant to be entertaining. They're not meant to be hard-hitting journalism. And I would just argue that we're now entering a world where they've become kind of PR infomercial pieces for the athletes or the person being represented in the content. And the reason I would say this is in most cases, the athlete or the subject of the documentary is an executive producer, right? So they have some say, maybe it's a little bit say, maybe it's a lot. They have some say in the content that's actually being produced, being edited, and being sent out for production. Now, the best example of this is The Last Dance. I loved The Last Dance. I thought it was awesome. I really enjoyed watching it. It came out during the pandemic. It was huge for... Obviously, Michael Jordan, it was huge for Nike. It was huge for everyone involved. But it was extremely one-sided. It was super one-sided. Michael Jordan was paid, I think it was $10 million. Granted, he donated all of it, but he was still paid a lot of money to do it. And he basically had free reign against everything that was said in that documentary, telling his side of the story. So that was the start of this, and it's only gotten worse. I think Johnny Manziel was one piece of this. They didn't even mention any of his teammates, many of which were the reason why that team was so good alongside Manziel. And again, they were all high draft picks. They didn't mention any of them. There was no context around the team itself and why the team was so good. They barely ventured into his professional football years. He showed no remorse for basically anything that he did. I don't even think they touched on his domestic violence issue from a few years ago. He obviously has a drug problem that he barely touched on as well. He mentioned his suicide attempt, which was like 30 seconds of the episode. Again, no details or context provided around that. There was a bunch of empty questions left unanswered. Did he save any of his money? What's he up to now? Is this a redemption story? Is it? I don't know, right? We left with a bunch of unanswered questions. I thought that one was actually a little bit more entertaining than the Florida one, albeit I still didn't think it was great. I thought there was a few things that they could have improved on for sure. But the Florida Gators one is a mess. That thing was a freaking commercial for Urban Meyer. It was a four-part series designed to rehabilitate his image and act like he's an amazing coach. We didn't hear about Aaron Hernandez really at all. There was nothing really in there about Cam Newton and the story about him stealing a laptop. The Pouncey Twins weren't in there. Joe Hayden wasn't in there. Percy Harvin wasn't in there. Chris Leak was disrespected to some degree, talking about how he wasn't a good enough quarterback. There was a bunch of problems. 
And we've seen this all over the board. There was the one with Jake Paul. They obviously had the one with Harry and Meghan out. They're now doing one on Jerry Jones, where he's getting paid $50 million for a 10-part series on his life and career with the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, this is absolutely absurd. We need to call it what it is. It's a payday for the subject being involved. It's content for Netflix, for Apple, for HBO, for ESPN, whoever's producing it. And the fans, in most cases, like it because it's entertaining. But documentaries are not supposed to be entertaining. If you want to create something that's just entertaining and you don't need to follow the facts or ask questions or do any of that stuff, you create something like Air, which I enjoyed as a movie. I saw it in theaters, but a lot of it was inaccurate. The way that they talk about negotiating the contract, the involvement of Michael Jordan's mom in the deal was incorrect. The fact that they say that Nike's only athlete that year was Michael Jordan, they sent the whole budget on him, that was incorrect. The meetings they talk about was incorrect. The fact that they knew what Adidas and all these other companies were going to say to Michael Jordan, that was incorrect. A lot of stuff was incorrect with that movie, but it's Hollywood. And you know to some degree that facts are going to be manipulated and they're going to change things in the name of entertainment for the big screen. With documentaries, I don't think that should be the case. You're specifically looking for things, especially in a series that's literally called Untold. You're looking for things that you do not know. In a lot of instances, there were sure two, three stories in the Manziel doc that we didn't know about You know, his father potentially faking a heart attack to get him out of a drug test at the combine. A few different things too about him signing the autographs or whatever. But most of the stuff was just reliving his college years, which we already knew about. It was all reported on. A real documentary to me is what was done on Manti Teo. Now that was a documentary. There was a bunch of stuff in that documentary that none of the public knew about. The media in a lot of ways was manipulated during that story. And I learned a bunch of stuff that I did not know previously during that story because they got the main subjects to participate. Those subjects were open. They were willing to talk about everything. And there was context added to the issues. So this is something that's clearly going to continue to come up as more sports documentaries get produced. We all know that content is king right now. The streaming services are paying a lot of money for this stuff. And sports is a huge, huge, huge industry where all of these streaming companies want content from. So it's only going to get worse because in a lot of instances, people like Jerry Jones, they're going to want control over what's being said, especially if it comes along with a payday. They know they're only going to get one crack at this. He's not going to be able to go sell another 10-part series for $50 million to Amazon after he sells that same series to Netflix. Right? He's got one crack at this. So he wants a payday, and he wants control over what's said. I don't think it's going to be an amazing series. I'll still probably watch it because I like sports documentaries and sports content, but everyone needs to be cautious about this stuff in the future. The documentary stage has changed. There are much more infomercials now. There are PR pitches. And the subjects in a lot of these cases have executive producer roles on the documentaries, giving them control ultimately over what makes it in the final cut. And I just don't like that. That's it for today, though. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. If you did, please do me a favor and share it with one of your friends. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and we'll talk on Monday. 